if you'd open up your Bibles, back to Second uh, Samuel 23. If you're new with us this morning and you're wondering maybe how we choose the passages we preach on, um, we choose them by preaching through a book. So we've been working our way through this book, actually, and we're up to, to the last couple chapters here. And uh, if you're interested, you can go online and hear the whole, the whole series. In fact, you can hear past series we've preached through. I think the last ones were Revelation and Luke and Acts. You can go and, and listen to those online at our site. But today we're at uh, 2 Samuel 23. And our text today is about the last words of David. And uh, we know this because the very first sentence tells us these are the last words of David. Now, you've probably heard the phrase, famous last words. Those final utterances of, of uh, people just before they are, are, are going to pass away. Those words of their final breath. And often, especially if they're famous people, these last words are, are recorded for uh, pros- posterity. <coughs> Excuse me. Sometimes they're, uh, they're sweet. John Wayne, his last words, is he, he turned to his wife and said, Of course I know who you are. You're my girl. I love you. Those are sweet words. Sometimes they are sad. Joan Crawford yelled at her housekeeper who was praying for her, don't you dare ask God to help me. Those were her last words. Sometimes they're kind of funny. Oscar Wilde said just before he died, either that wallpaper goes or I do. I think the wallpaper stayed. But what we have here are actually a different kind of last words from David. They're not literally the last, you know, sentences that he spoke just before he kicked the bucket. Um, No, David lived for quite a while after this, and I'm sure he spoke many more words. No, these are the last words of David, and that they are his final words to his people and to us. These are the words uh, that I would call actually his lasting words. This, this bit of prophetic wisdom that sort of sums up all that he's about. You know, that one thing that you could leave people with, if you had one thing to say, these are those words from David. And what we need to understand is that at their core, they are words of kingdom hope. David is is reflecting on the kingdom that God has promised and that God has built through him and kind of projecting forward and and casting hope. The central verses of this text are essentially a prophecy about the great kingdom of God to come and how, how awesome it will be and how hopeful it will be. David wants his people to know that the kingdom of God that that he's established and that he's kind of raised up through David, although David has has struggled and he's failed and he's now weary and he can't even lead them in battle and he's he's on his way out, he wants them to know that, that God's kingdom isn't coming to an end, that it continues beyond him, that it will be great. He wants his to leave his people with kingdom hope. And we need to pay attention because we too are kingdom people. This kingdom promise has has come to us in Christ, the final Davidic king, 
and, and we look forward to, to its complete fulfillment. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come. And we need to know the hope that's in this. We need to remember it and reflect on it. You see, what he says here, what David says here, these hopeful kingdom truths, uh, not only still stand, but they're more real for us today, this side of the cross, this side of Jesus. Do you feel any need for hope this morning? Maybe circumstances have caused you to, to struggle and, and lose some hope, or at least lose sight of it, so that the future just seems kind of empty and, and bleak. Maybe loss or imminent loss of, of a loved one has brought a, a cloud of darkness and despair that you can't seem to see through. Maybe your addictions or your ongoing sin in your life has got the best of you again and you feel hopeless and helpless in your shame. Maybe this worldwide pandemic with all its masks and vaccinations and political division has, has brought ugliness into your family that you thought you'd never see. And it just seems kind of endless. Maybe it's affected your church. It feels hopeless. Well, here are the lasting words of David. Three truths about God's kingdom to bolster his people's hope and ours. And the first one that we see here in this text is simply this. It's a kingdom secured by divine word. The kingdom of God that God built through David and that continues today and that we're looking forward to is a kingdom secured by divine word. You see, every earthly kingdom starts in hope, doesn't it? It always starts with a vision of a new and better society. You know, this king is coming, they've conquered this, this kingdom, and they're starting the new kingdom, and they've got big plans. The Greeks, right, had a, had a better culture and philosophy and mathematics, and they were going to make the world so much better, Hellenize everything. The Romans could build anything from roads to aqueducts, all that infrastructure. I've been to Roman cities. They were incredible. They are going to make society better, more livable, more accessible for everybody. Even the Nazis thought they were engineering the perfect race, getting rid of all the imperfections of humanity. But eventually, all these kingdoms fail and fall. Assyria, Egypt, Greece, Rome, one great kingdom after another laying in the dust. Archaeology is basically the study of failed kingdoms. But this kingdom, David's kingdom, is rooted and guaranteed by the very word of God. That's what's being said in the first verses of our text. By the way, we should get to it. Before we get to 3 and 4 where he talks about the kingdom itself, this is what he says in introduction to it. He says this, Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. You see, what he's saying here is that the words that he is bringing are not just the words of a man, of the son of 
Jesse, but they are an oracle of the one who was lifted up, raised up on high. First thing he wants you to know is these words come from somebody that God in, acted upon incredibly. That's, that, that's the story of David's life, right? He was just a mere shepherd boy, but God reached down and grabbed a hold of him, and he lifted him up and made him this great warrior king who would conquer all Israel's enemies and reign over the land and bring peace and justice and prosperity to his people. But why did God do that for David? Did he decide just to pick out this random guy and do this? No, it says because he is the anointed of the God of Jacob. You see, God had promised all the way back to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, back in Genesis 12, that he would make their descendants his blessed people, that he would create a great kingdom through them. He would make them a great nation, and he would give them a land of peace and blessing, and he would rule over them. All the elements of a kingdom that were in the Garden of Eden and were lost, no, he would restore it to them. And David is the trajectory and the fulfillment of this, and he knows it. As David is about to speak kingdom promises about the future kingdom of God, he wants them, his people, to remember that his life is the very fulfillment of divine kingdom promise. His life is the evidence and guarantee that his words of prophecy will stand, that his kingdom promises are real and secure. He has the pedigree of divine promise fulfilled in him. That's strong. That's big evidence behind the words that you're about to say, the prophetic words. But it gets even better than that here. Look at verse 2. Put my glasses on again. After he says they're the words of the one lifted up, he says this, verse 2, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. David isn't just promising and speaking for God based on his incredible pedigree, but he's saying, God, as I speak, God is actually speaking. The, the word spirit here, when he says the spirit of the Lord is on me, that's the word breath, ruach in Hebrew. God's breath is in him, and it's breathing out across his tongue. You know, when we speak, that's how it works. Our breath comes out, our tongue makes shapes, and thus the words are formed. And he's saying, the breath that's coming out of me to form these words is actually the divine breath, the Ruach of God. It's the exact same word used in the creation story when God breathes things into existence and breathes life into man. David's words here are not only rooted in divine promise that's been fulfilled in history, they are backed by divine creational power that speaks things into existence and brings life. What does that mean? What does it mean for these words? Well, he sums it up in verse 5. Actually, actually, he gives us the words, and then in verse 5 he says this. For does not my house stand so with God? 
for he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. This kingdom, God's kingdom that he's promising, this beautiful, righteous kingdom, is secure, he says. It's a certainty. It's a guaranteed reality. Because it's, it, it's, it's given out in God's word. My friends, talk about fostering hope, real hope. You would never think, just looking out at our world, that God's righteous and beautiful rule is on its way, for sure. With every, you know, thing, all the moral degradation increasing every day, so that every new technology is just used in some perverse and evil way, with the catastrophic predictions of all the environmental experts telling us that pollution and global warming are going to definitely be our end, with worldwide pandemic actually happening and, and seeming to project a future where there's more of this, with every effort of mankind to try to fix it just mired in political division and corruption, and of course with every Hollywood movie being, you know, this dystopian future where we live underground. It's really hard to have hope. Things look bleak. My friends, our experience will never take us to hope. But God's word will. His divine, powerful word of promise that establishes the world in creation and that's proven itself over and over in history, from David being raised up from a shepherd boy to the ultimate son of David being raised up from the dead. And it all says, thy kingdom will come. We need to get our eyes off of all this world, and we need to look at the word. His kingdom, our kingdom... It's secure. He reigns and he says it is. But this kingdom doesn't just bring us hope because it's so secure and sure, but also because it's going to be so good. When we get to the second part of, of verse 3, and David actually begins to describe uh, you know, to prophesy this future kingdom, this is what he says about it. He says that it's a kingdom of unparalleled goodness. Look at verse 3 with me. The word of God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like a morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloud this morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That's a pretty good picture. And I want us to notice a few things. First of all, I want us to note that this is a definite prophecy. You can't see this in the English because it starts with the word when. When one rules justly. It kind of sounds like, you know, when a time comes, when a ruler does rule, rule well, or if he does, or if he doesn't. Sounds a little bit uh, iffy. But actually in the Hebrew it says this, basically. It says... Uh, 
see if I wrote it down somewhere. It says, ruler rules over mankind. It's, it's not an if or a when. It's, it's a definite, emphatic rule. It says this, ruler over mankind, a righteous one, ruling in the fear of the Lord. It's an announcement. David is reaching back to 2 Samuel 7.14 where he was promised an offspring who would establish his kingdom forever and who would be the very son of God and he's stating it as a future reality. There will be this righteous one. And secondly, note that he says that he rules over men. It's actually over mankind. He's, it's, it's a statement of universal Rule, not just over Israel, but over all mankind. David is picturing a righteous, universal rule, ruler who will reign over mankind every human life, and his rule will be in the fear of the Lord, in perfect obedience and accordance with God himself. This is how we know David is looking to horizon definitely beyond himself and beyond any kind of historical kingdom now. I mean, his kingdom at times maybe could be described as righteous, but after Bathsheba, we probably wouldn't want to use that word, his rule for his rule. And of course, the extent of his rule was definitely not universal. David is clearly foreshadowing and predicting the reign of Jesus, the final Davidic king, the righteous son of God. He is saying to his people, and he's saying to us, he is coming. And when he does come to bring in his kingdom in its fullness, it will be universal. Every knee will bow, and he will rule rightly, justly. My friends, that's what was established at the cross when he conquered, when Jesus conquered sin and death and rose to the throne in heaven, and he'll bring it in fullness when he returns. And David wants his people, and he wants us to know it's going to be so good and wonderful. It's something you can hardly imagine, but he tries to give us a taste of it with a little poetic imagery. Verse 4 again, this is what it will be like. He dawns on them like a morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. He says, think of, uh, think of the morning sun. That sunlight with all its brilliance coming, out, coming up completely unhindered, a cloudless day. As it breaks forth in the darkness and shines its warmth on the earth. Perhaps upon your body if you're standing it, you can feel it. And combine that with a gentle rain that brings abundant and lush growth. It's very garden-esque language, isn't it? It's a picture of blessing and growth. The reviving, refreshing, renewing effects of sunlight and rain. Blooming things to life. In fact, in verse 5, when he says this at the end of verse 5, For he will not cause, for will he not cause to prosper? That could be bloom. All my help. That could be salvation. Will he, for he, will he not cause to bloom all my salvation and my desire? David is saying, the salvation I've dreamt of, my deepest desire, will come to full bloom. 
think it's hard for us to imagine what it would really be like to have a righteous ruler. A ruler who actually does right by his people, ruling in truth and justice for their good. We are so used to immoral, selfish, corrupt leaders, where even the best of them, we have to, you know, have systems to keep them in check because they're sinners just like us. So we can't even get our minds around a righteous kingdom where the king actually builds up and and revives us and gives us life like the sun and the rain in a withering garden. We can't even get our, our minds around it. But yet it is the deepest desire of our bones. It's what we're made for. It's such a great hope, isn't it, to know it's coming, such a kingdom guaranteed by the word of God, the divine, all-powerful word. And my friends, it's been secured already in Jesus, our Davidic king, when he showed up 2,000 years ago and was described by John not only as the divine word, the agent of creation, but the true life, the true light that gives light to everyone. The light has come to the world and he's returning to reign my friends do you have this hope in your life do you know Jesus are you resting in him have you given your life over to him so you can pray thy kingdom come in hope because you know you're going to be part of it He offers this hope to all who will come to him. Now there's one more truth here about the kingdom of God that should really uh, bolster our hope. You see, it's not only a kingdom secured in divine word. It's not only a kingdom of unparalleled goodness and blessing, but it is also a kingdom of exclusion. Look at the last verses of our text, verse 6. But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron in the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Seems like a strange shift, doesn't it? David's been speaking about the hope of the goodness and righteousness of God's kingdom when it comes in full. And now he's suddenly talking about worthless men being thrown away like weeds and burned up. But it's a part of the hope, my friends. It's a big part. Worthless men is not a new phrase if you've been with us through the series, especially if you were with us for the series in 1 Samuel as well. We've heard it many times. In 1 Samuel, it was used six times of of perverse and foolish men. First, it was used of Eli's sons, his corrupt sons. It was used of Nabal, fool. In this book, it's been used several times, and most recently, it's been used in chapter 20, verse 1. Let me read it to you. 
There's the man, is applied to the man uh, uh, named Sheba. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, the Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. See, it's always used of men or people that are opposed to God's king and his kingdom. People who are literally enemies of righteousness, those opposed to living in the fear of the Lord, those who don't want light but prefer darkness, those that don't pursue renewal and life but rather corruption and evil. Like thorns, they are useless and dangerous and thus they'll be excluded from the regime they oppose. And this is good news. If they were allowed into the kingdom of righteousness and light, they would ruin it. So they'll be excluded and destroyed. And of course, I want to point out that this is just not some Old Testament idea. John the Baptist said of Jesus in Matthew 3, 12, when he prophesied about him, that Jesus would come with his winnowing fork in his hand. That's the fork where they would take it and put it into the big pile of wheat and throw the wheat up into the air so that the, the chafe, all the garbage, would fly to the side from the wind, and they would keep throwing it up with the fork. Pretty soon you'd have a pile of all the garbage and a pile of the good wheat. And the good wheat would be taken to the barn, and the pile of garbage would be burned. He says, Jesus will do that. And one of the most sobering points of that story is that it says that Jesus knows who's the wheat and who's the chafe. He knows. Then in Matthew 13, this is reinforced with the parable of the weeds. And I'm going to read the end of it. It says this. I need to put my glasses on again. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. This is hope. All evil excluded and gone forever. This is why John can say of the heavenly kingdom pictured in Revelation 21.4, it will be a place with no more tears and no death. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Man, that sounds awesome. That's the place I want to be. But why? For the former things, all the evil, has passed away. It's gone. My friends, there is no righteous kingdom without righteous judgment. There is no hope of heaven without the reality of hell. Those who preach the universalist false gospel where there's no judgment and all go to heaven would rob us of our hope. The hope of a secure, good, righteous kingdom of light and life and blessing. It's a kingdom of exclusion and that is good and hopeful. But here's the best thing. Here's the most hopeful thing. 
this exclusive, pure, beautiful kingdom has somehow become open to all. This exclusive kingdom is now simultaneously all-inclusive. Even the worst sinners, repeated sinners, pathetic sinners, loser sinners, sexual sinners, liars, haters, abusers, and all the rest. It's been open to us in a way that we, we won't ruin it. By Jesus. That's why he came. That's why he had to come. King Jesus, the Davidic king, the righteous king, came to give his righteous life at the cross in our place to bring us forgiveness and cleansing from all evil and even death. That, that the worst of us can enter his righteous kingdom. Cleanse and, cleanse and righteous ourselves. And all he asks is that we trust him. That we come to him in repentance and faith, asking him for forgiveness and trusting in his salvation for us. And I just want to ask you this morning if you've done that. Have you received the righteousness of Jesus, his cleansing, his reviving, his new life, and thus the hope of his kingdom? If you haven't, I'm going to pray now. And today you can actually know real hope in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner who is unworthy to be in your beautiful, pure, eternal kingdom and unable to be in your holy presence. Thank you for coming and dying in my place on the cross for taking on my sin my judgment, my hell thank you for washing me clean that I may know you and be with you in your wonderful heavenly kingdom be my king, Jesus be my savior help me to love you and to live for you amen I'm going to be up here afterwards Speak to if you prayed that prayer, please come talk to me.